Mark 7, starting with verse 24. This morning we're going to be in Mark 7, starting with verse 24, and the last time we looked at basically Jesus dealing with the religious echelon, the religious leaders who had become corrupt, and they also turned the people off to God. There was no attraction to God because the, the uh, example was not there. And it's so important for us, even as Christians, you don't have to be a pastor to have to set a good example, because... As the expression goes, you might be the only Bible that a person ever reads. So when we go out into the world, you know, that we really try to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And I I did give a homework assignment uh, to read Matthew 23. And Matthew 23 basically is a whole chapter dedicated to when religion is bad, when it's a bad example, how it could turn people further away from God, when the design is really to turn people to God, right? And that's why we preach relationship. God wants a relationship with us. That's very important. He doesn't want us to just do a bunch of stuff over and over again, memorize things. Anybody can do that. He wants to talk to us. He wants our heart. He wants us to share our dreams and our hopes and our failures and just be honest with him. Well, today we're going to look at two individuals who were Gentiles. And I'll talk a little bit about the cultural makeup uh, back then. And they were in desperate situations. And that's what the title of today's message is. However, we see the desperation turned into determination. You know, they had needs that they needed to be met. And that determination uh, turned into definitive action. And that definitive action turned into dispersal of the gospel. So I kind of put out four Ds just to help to understand in in the mind how we're going to go through this. So desperation is the start, then determination, then... um, Definitive action, and then dispersal of the gospel. So starting with verse 24, Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he, Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit or a demon heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So we are introduced to this woman who accosts the Lord. She finds him. She knows who he is. She has a need and she comes to him. What do we know about this woman? Well, if I could, before I get into her pedigree, I'd like to go back to Matthew 15. Just read a few verses there. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives a little bit more detail or from a different perspective. Matthew 15, starting with verse 23. But he, Jesus, answered her not a word. And this would be initially. And she's crying out to him. He doesn't answer her. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, if I stopped there and we went home, some of you might have difficulty with this passage. You might say, well, that's not the Jesus I heard of. That sounds mean. Well, see, that's what the scripture twisters will do. They'll take something out of context, try to make something there that's not there. So I'm going to explain it, hopefully do a good job, and make it completely understandable. So we, we learned the first thing about this woman was she was a Greek. She was a Grecian. In other words, she was a non-Jew. Number two, she was a Syro-Phoenician, probably of Phoenician ethnicity living in Syria. And if you know your Middle East, you know there's areas there and there's migrations of people. And the Phoenicians, thousands and thousands of years ago, were seafaring people. But they were known to be Gentiles, not to be submitted to the monotheistic God. Tyre and Sidon, Sidon today is modern-day Lebanon. Right, so we, if you ever, in your back of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, I like to look at the maps. Where's everything going on? I want to know. And we can see how over thousands of years, even some of those cultures and some of those practices are retained today in some of these areas. So Lebanon, we know Lebanon, it's near Israel. Okay. So they were clearly Gentile dominated, and that might have lended to the disciples uneasy feeling that led to their attitude. And they did have an attitude. Send her away. She cries out after us. Where's the love, man? Where's the compassion? In verse 24, it says that Jesus went, not peri. Now, this is a Greek preposition. Peri, periscope, perimeter. Jesus did not go around this area. He went, in the Greek, ice. He went into this area. So what we find out there is that he purposely goes into Gentile territory. And again, the disciples are probably uneasy about that, especially based on the way they grew up. But even today, the Lord allows us to do things and to go down certain paths that make us uneasy, but we have to trust him. And as we look at the trust that the disciples had to have for the Lord in our own lives, we have to see those parallels as well. What's he doing with us? What path is he taking us down today that we need to trust him? The other thing is we need to go out of our comfort zones to reach the lost. That's really important. This isn't just some story written 2,000 years ago. This is applicable to you and I. Today, 2014 in New Jersey. I remember I was a police officer for a few years, and I became a Christian, and it was cool. You know, I was digging it slowly. And then somebody had suggested to me that I go into the prisons and do prison ministry. I said, you don't understand. The cardinal rule is cops don't belong in prison. <laughs> so I prayed about it, and uh, I went in reluctantly, a little unnerving when they closed the the steel bars, and I was behind the concrete with a whole bunch of inmates. And I found out afterwards that the whole pod knew that I was a police officer. So I was grossly outnumbered. <laughs> but I have to tell you, nothing bad happened to me. Um, it really went a long way to the inmates because I reached across law enforcement to touch them. And it was cool. We would sit there in one of the rooms and we would praise the Lord. And, and I tell you what, I love doing prison ministry. But that was hard for me. You know, I had to come out of my comfort zones. Brothers and sisters, we have to do the same thing. You know, maybe some might be curious about the inner cities, but they're afraid. They've heard things about the inner cities, and, and they don't understand the culture in the inner cities. But maybe the Lord is calling you to come out of your comfort zones and go into those areas. We have a brother in the church who told me oh, about a year ago, he said, years ago before Calvary Chapel came in, that this was known as the white church on the hill. And he said, I look around and I see people of color, and he goes, it warms my heart. I said, I feel the same way you do. 
you know, this, this crossing cultural lines. Yeah, back then it was Jew and Gentile. Today, Jew and Gentiles, we, we get along so fine. But there's other cultures that clash and cross. And we have to realize that they're people too. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. It's reflexive, right? Amen? Amen. The third thing that we learn is that this woman's daughter was demon-possessed. So she was in a desperate situation. How many times have we been in a desperate situation? If we've lived long enough and we've gone out into the world after leaving mom and dad's home, you know, there's times that we run into real desperate situations. How do we respond? Well, let's see how she responded. The fourth point about her, she was persistent. She would not take no for an answer, but she did it respectively, right? She was respectful about the whole thing. It reminds me of the persistent widow in Luke 18, where Jesus talks about the widow who constantly goes before the judge and tries to plead her case, and finally he gives her what she wants because she's so persistent. And he says, but your Father in heaven loves you. So he made the parallel with us praying. We should be persistent in our prayers. We should seek the Lord. We should come to him every day. However, here's a crossroads that we can run into. Remember, we talked about desperation to determination, to definitive action, to the dispersal of the gospel. However, it can go the other way too. Desperation can turn to depression, and depression can turn into despondency. You may be in this church this morning, and you might be at that crossroads. Your desperation might go in one or two directions. I want to encourage you. If that's you this morning, you know, what are the odds that you've come into this church and this speaks to your situation? Don't let it turn into desperation, to depression and despondency. Let it go in the other direction. And maybe we might be encouraged by what we read this morning. Read Matthew 15 again. 23 through 25, just so we could drink it in a little bit. Part of the discussion, Jesus answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Help me. At first glance, again, it seems harsh, but let's jump into this. I believe... My opinion is that this was a twofold test by the Lord. Number one, obviously, he was testing this woman. He was testing her faith. He was testing her resolve. And God does test us. And that's not a bad thing. Because testing brings things out of us. Testing brings forth maturity. It brings forth persistence and perseverance. So it's a good thing when God tests us. But I also believe that he was testing his disciples to see how they would respond to the, and I quote, less desirables of society. Now, I don't believe that, and God's word doesn't believe that, but it's possible that the disciples believe that, and it's possible also that some Christians today believe that. In sinful society, the way man has set up society, we have a pecking order. You show me any society in the world. I'm from years ago, and my ancestors are from Italy. And they even have the northern and the southern Italians. And the southern and northern Italians look very different. You know, the ones lighter and fair-haired and strawberry blonde hair, and some of the ones by the southern border, like me, are darker, we tan easier. So even among certain regions, there's this competition. The foods are different, the cultures, even the dialects are different. Some people think that everybody in Africa gets along. Absolutely not. That's a continent. 
Even within certain countries, there's this one, you know, one group of people is taller, one group of people is, is shorter, and, and there's warring. So this is what the world does. And we have to break through that as Christians, because under Christ, we're all made one. So a test of the woman. Was she persistent? You betcha. She was really persistent. How does what she did compare to our faith? Could we learn something from this Gentile woman thousands of years ago who knew very little about the God of Israel? Could we learn something? Could we be convicted by her behavior and her actions? Right? Can she be an encouragement to us? Now let's look at the disciples. Again, Jesus was testing them. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So the Father, the Holy Spirit, they're down with this. The Son was down with this because he literally came down for this. right? And that everyone means everyone. There's nobody outside of the gate. But we have to want it. We have to desire him. We have to, Jesus says, come to me. In the Old Testament, God says, come to me. But the, the disciples, are you guys down with it? Can you look at every single person in society and say, you know, I, I want to see that person come into the fold? I think this was a test for them. Because if the disciples had their way, this woman would have left how? She would have left more desperate, depressed, hopeless, and with a wrong view of God. And that's really important, that we don't give or put forth the wrong view of God. But Jesus takes control of the situation. Now, I'm going to make parallels even in the Christian culture, right? I mean, I find this interesting that, did you know that the disciples oftentimes argued with the Lord? Imagine that. Well, when we pray, do we ever argue with the Lord? Of course we do, because we're foolish and we're sinful, and we don't get it, and we don't see his big plan. Well, I'll give you a few examples. Remember Judas arguing with Jesus about the woman who, who anointed him with the spikenard, very expensive and costly fragrance? Well, this could have been given to the poor, questioning the Lord's judgment. Well, we knew what his motives were. Even Peter argued with the Lord when Jesus said, I've got to go to the cross. No, you shall not go to the cross. Oh, that was a pretty good dispute right there. Jesus said, you're listening to Satan, you're not listening to the Father. In this situation, though, they're silent because they wanted the woman to go away. They wanted her to go away. Now, I've done a lot of study on social behavior and behaviorism and you know, we've talked about mob mentality, but we also talked about bystander mentality. To see something happen, to know it's wrong and not speak up. Right? It happens a lot. But as Christians, we have a greater responsibility because if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will tell us this is wrong. And sometimes when we get even in our peer groups among Christians, there's something that goes down and it's wrong. And we, we, we zip our lips. We may be afraid to, to say something uh, to go against what the group is deciding. That's not a good thing. I've seen that cowardice in the church at times. You know something's wrong, and you don't step up to say anything. You just go along with what the crowd is doing. Now let's look at this banter between Jesus and this woman. The first thing is that, what does he mean? You know, this whole thing about the, the children being fed, and then she's saying, listen, you know, even the, the, the dogs from under the table will, will take the food that falls off the, the master's table. 
The first thing, Jesus spoke about really the children of Israel as the, as the children. So it was to the Jew first. Now, I don't get offended by that because I understand the mission of the Messiah. It was to the Jew first and, then, and the Gentile. But I find it ironic that Jesus purposely goes into Gentile territory, but he has this discussion with the woman. So there's something more afoot here. The second thing is that understand the usage of the words. The Pharisees, as sanctimonious, hypocritical, religious men, might have said, those are Gentile dogs. That's not what Jesus was saying. Dog was a, you know, I have two dogs, and dogs are kind of like man's best friend in today's culture. But if you called somebody a dog in that culture, it was, it was a serious and severe insult. Jesus uses the word puppy. It's a derivative of dog, but it's also a diminutive in the Greek, which means a, a smaller version. It's, this is really a play on words. And if you had a diminutive in Greek, a little something, it was understood in affectionate terms. So don't misunderstand that. What impresses me about this woman is she had so much working against her, but she refused to, to give up. What was the first thing? Well, Satan had tormented her daughter. We don't know how, how old this little girl was, but she had this problem with possession, obviously. The second thing is there were social barriers. A, she was a Gentile approaching a group of Jews. Really didn't happen in that culture. And number two, she was a woman, a lone woman approaching a group of men, which really didn't happen in that culture especially Jewish men, but she did it anyway. And the other thing is that the disciples wanted her to go away, and it appeared, I say that importantly, emphatically, it appeared that the Lord wanted her to go away as well. However, God honors her faith, her humility, and her persistence. Now let's look at a few things, um, just the whole, maybe the mindset of this woman, and compare it to American culture, because aren't we taught right? Books upon self, us, we, you know, you, people. Um, I actually remember when I was a kid watching Sesame Street, and I, I still remember that song as a little kid, the most important person in the whole wide world is you. Anybody remember that, or is it just me? I'm not singing anymore. That's where I'm going to end it. <laughs> but I did come across an article that said how Sesame Street betrayed two generations with this portrayal of self. So our society is telling us to look in the mirror and love ourselves. And, and the Bible is telling us to be more other-centered. So you have this war between cultures, the culture that God wants us to have and what we're brought up with and what we deal with and what we see on the racks and, you know, all the whole celebrities. I mean, they, there's even the sprays that they use on their skin and stuff to look really not real, to look almost perfect, the airbrushing and all that kind of stuff. So that being said, with the backdrop, how many in American culture would refer to themselves, number one, with a self-effacing term as puppies eating crumbs that fall from the table to get to God? I don't think many. Even on Facebook, we have followings. We could have people that follow us now. We can all be little narcissistic celebrities on social media, you know, because that's the way the culture is set up here. And that's often a hindrance to our are reaching God. And then we get frustrated when he doesn't reach back fast enough. The second thing we see is really in our culture is a lack of humility, which is a great barrier to getting to God. I've, I've literally heard this, talking to somebody about the Lord, and they say, you know, I prayed once and God didn't answer. <laughs> and so I'm done with him. Wow. How long did you work on that promotion? Right? How long did you 
work on your educational pursuits, but you prayed once and God didn't answer. The third thing is the entitlement mentality, which is another hindrance oftentimes in our culture to getting to God. And it's not on his, his point. He wants us to come to him. It's usually on our side. Well, it is on our side. In other words, we're, we feel that we're owed something. And if I don't get something from God, I'll get it somewhere else. That type of mentality is putting us in trillions of dollars worth of debt. We are in trouble in this country because everybody wants their slice of the pie. And they're, they're just leaning on these politicians who, unfortunately, are, you know, their, their convictions are not there. And we're throwing ourselves further and further into trillions of dollars of debt, which is going to hurt our children and grandchildren because of this entitlement mentality. I deserve this. I want this. And sometimes we have that attitude towards God. I want this. You don't understand. And if we don't say it with our lips, we believe it in our heart. So that's also hurting us from, from you know, that good relationship, sweet fellowship that we can have with him. It's really hard to say, to, put our, to drop all our vulnerabilities and say, whatever you want, God, I'm open to it. I think it's even worse in the Christian culture that we put God on a timetable. I've heard that. You know, Lord, I, I've, got, I've got a week to get this done. I've got to do this by tomorrow. I need an answer now. Really? You know, prayer and, and what we, when we seek God should be an ongoing relationship. Remarkably, though, the demon was eventually removed. And again, I just think of these things. I mean, you know, how, how did that happen? The demon is doing his thing. He's embodying a person, and all of a sudden, he just gets, he just gets sucked out of her and sucked down the drain and thrown into the abyss or whatever Jesus does with that demon, and it's done remotely. He's looking around. How's this happening? And he just gets just sucked out of the girl, and, and he's done. I want to read to you Matthew 15, verse 28. It says, Then Jesus answered and said to her, Now this is exclamatory. There's an exclamation point. So by the rendering of the Greek, English uh, grammatical icons are used, or punctuation marks, to really help you to understand how this is said in the Greek. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I love that. Why is he so excited? She made his day. Why? Because a woman who knew very little of the monotheistic God had great faith in him. And Jesus even said, among my own people, I don't see this that much. But she has this great faith, and he, this remarkable faith, and she's rewarded for it. Brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking to the Christians here, what is our view of God? Do we really think of him as a really big God? Or through our actions and behaviors and our lifestyles, do we almost see him as a, a small God? Hey, we can say, oh yeah, I love the Lord. We could do the Christian thing in church. But really, how do we live out our lives? Because God responds to great faith. And when we look at him as, as someone who's weak, it's an insult to him. Now, I was asked this question a few weeks ago. Did Jesus ever laugh? And as I was studying this, I thought to myself, I can see him smiling and just you know, chuckling and, and try not to, trying to contain himself for the joy that he experienced when this woman just kept coming at him. Again, completely respectful. You know, and he, he makes this analogy with children and, and bread and puppies. And she says, well, I'm just a puppy. I'm looking for a crumb. Can I just have a crumb, Lord? I could just see him just showing all of his teeth with a big smile. 
So it doesn't necessarily specifically say that Jesus had a, a belly laugh in the scripture, but I believe that this is one of those situations where he just was full of joy. And I think Matthew 15, 8, uh, 15, 28 reveals that as well. Verse 31, the second person that we're going to speak about in Mark 7. And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. Now picture this. <laughs> and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commended them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So second desperate situation, Jesus goes into now Decapolis. So he's going east and he's going south. And Decapolis means ten cities. Where is that on the map today? Modern-day Syria and Jordan. Now I just want to, this is probably good for a Berean room discussion, but you know, the... We look at our culture in, in the United States, and we look at old cities, and they're a few hundred years old. We go to Philadelphia, and it's so cool. I love history, looking at the artifacts and you know, all these different writings from the founding fathers, etc. But it's only a few hundred years old. You go to the Middle East, you go to museums, you see artifacts. This stuff takes you back thousands of years. You see the ruins, you see the, the engravings, right? The, the, uh, the gear for, for war and their fighting equipment. That's obsolete today. This whole idea that the Bible is just a fairy tale, a bunch of old men wrote it. You know, that's a Western fabrication. That's what it is. You go to the Middle East, none of them will say to you, oh, we don't believe in the Bible, because they use it when they do their archaeology. It's so many miles from Jerusalem to, you know, to Bethlehem or to this remote city that no one's ever heard of. And, they, and they, they, do, 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 they map it out, they start digging, and they find stuff, just like the Bible said. Now, Middle Easterners don't necessarily agree on religion, and unfortunately they're fighting wars over it, but they know if they'd all just read the entire Bible, they would be a lot better off, and there'd be more harmony over there. I just needed to say that, because I hear this a lot, and it's ridiculous. It's a Western fabrication, you know? Because you know, our artifacts and our ruins and our writings only go back a few hundred years. Theirs go back several thousand years. So here we have another situation, and it says they begged him. They begged Jesus. So this guy can't speak, and he can't hear. Have you ever lost your voice for a while? It's, isn't it frustrating? Isn't it difficult when you can't communicate with someone? Now add that to deafness. You can't hear, and you can't speak. Very frustrating. I kind of want to interject you into the scripture so you can have empathy for this man, right? This person that they brought to Jesus. He's not just words on a, on a page. He had a name. He was somebody made in God's image, and then he had some problems. Now, we don't know what, what was wrong with him. Was this a congenital issue? Was it an untreated infection? Was it a head injury? We don't know. But we know that he can't speak and he can't hear. In verse 33, Jesus does the most unusual things when he heals, doesn't it? Remember the one where he spits on the ground and makes a little mud with his spit? 
and he puts it in the guy's eyes and, and you know, he can see again. Well, here Jesus does this thing where he takes his fingers, it probably, it could just picture him facing the guy, and he takes his fingers and he puts it in the guy's ears. And then he, he spits, and he, open your mouth, and he grabs his tongue and he puts the spit on his tongue. Man, what is up with that? You know? <laughs> can you picture walking with Jesus going, Thomas, what's he doing? I have no idea, but it's probably going to really get good in a few minutes. So just be quiet. Pass the popcorn. This is what I believe. In other instances, Jesus conversed because they could hear and they could speak, right? He converses with the woman that we just saw. She can hear him. She can speak. This guy can do neither. So what does he do? He becomes more demonstrative with the man. He's more obvious with the man. And I believe it's because that was what the man needed. And he also didn't want to frighten the man. I can tell you as in law enforcement, when we come upon a situation where a person is like this, there's a hearing impediment, there's a speech impediment. And I can tell you the first thing that they do when they see law enforcement is they're afraid. Because why are they afraid? Because they're afraid that they might not be able to communicate what the situation is. And now here's authority who has the power to do something. So I can tell you that that's the response. And we in law enforcement try to, to, to accommodate that and go out of our way to help that person so they're not afraid. And I think the, the key word here is communication. So right now, if you are engaged in the story and you're excited to know what happens, I'm doing a good job communicating with you. Right? And if I had a, a loss of voice or hearing, I might have a really p- big problem up here. So this is the, the main issue. Jesus reaches into the man's world and reaches into his heart. That's what he does. So Jesus speaking, if the guy couldn't read lips, he does the finger thing, he touches his ears. Yeah, that's where I have the problem, he's thinking to himself. He spits on his hand, he's looking at Jesus, and he takes his tongue and he puts it on his tongue. Yeah, yeah, that's the other problem that I have. I think this is going to be good. You know, I can't wait to see what he does. But Jesus reaches into the man's world. Right? He reaches into his heart. And in ministry, you know, we need to do the same thing. And I have to say this. I've seen Pastor Vinny and Maria, his wife, as the, as the youth leaders, I've seen them reach into the worlds of teens. And I, some teens, they come in there and they just make faces and, you know, they're like, you're not going to reach me. And that's a challenge to them. And that's how they teach others who are, are helping them do what they do in ministry. But that is a challenge. He, he wants to reach into their world. And that's what we have to do in ministry. And we have to come out of ourselves to be able to do that, to be able to come out of our comfort zones, what's comfortable for us. In verse 34, in Mark's gospel, Jesus looks to heaven and he sighs. Why? I believe that he feels and he sees and he's experiencing the results of the fall of mankind. He didn't want to see this man like this. People ask questions about God. Well, God do this and God... No, we have it all backwards. When we left him, when we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, we brought that separation. And what did God do? Want to complain about God? He sent his son to die for our sins so he could bring us back into the fold. God has done everything on his end. We also need to do something on our end. That's what makes a relationship. And 35, and I just like the detail, speaks about the impediment of the tongue. Now, this can be translated, this Greek word, check it out, band, ligament, or tendon. Right? There's maybe a connective tissue issue with the the tongue. 
And number two, it says, after the healing, he spoke plainly. And this could be translated correctly, uh, the word correctly. So what happened? Did you ever notice that physical therapy is a booming industry? You got a back injury, a shoulder injury. What do they do, right? You know, years ago, they say just bed rest. PT is a, big, a booming industry. They, just, they send you right to PT. And it's almost like the torture chamber. You know, you just got operated on. They start moving stuff that, oh, you know. And what do they do? They try to keep you from building up scar tissue. And they try to actually promote the healing process, get the blood flowing and stuff. You know, it's the same thing with a head injury or a, an injury, a brain injury that causes maybe a lack of sight or a lack of speaking. The PT people will do the same thing with you. They will try to get you going so that you can get back to the way you were before the injury. Check this out. When Jesus does a miracle, he always does it perfectly. Okay, the brain, the tongue, the ears, the, you know, all these things have to work in concert with each other for the man. To, this could have been from birth. He could have been in his 30s or 40s. But when Jesus does a miracle, immediately he downloads the information into the brain and the organs, and they start, he just speaks, and he's just doing it. I don't know about you, but I, I get into that stuff. You know, I like that detail. And brothers and sisters, when Jesus does a work in our lives, it's going to be perfect. Now, it may not be exactly the answer to prayer that we're looking for. It might be a little bit different than what we had in mind, but it, it will be perfect for us. Keep that in mind. And sometimes, you know, I've had, I've prayed about things and, and the situation went down and I was discouraged or disappointed. And then years later, I realized that's exactly the way it should have been. If God answered the prayer exactly the way I asked for it, it might not have been good for me. We have to trust him. Last verse, actually Matthew fifteen thirty one. I'm going back and forth. It says, so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. The Gentiles glorified the God of Israel. Now let's look at this from both ends. This desperate situation, the people who had this desperate situation foisted upon themselves, it turned into determination, it turned into definitive action, and it turned into the dispersal of the gospel. Let's look at it from the other end. Let's go back and forth. The person who has the difficulty and the person who's responding, maybe the Christian who's responding to the difficulty. Remember, we can never go wrong when we walk in, in, in the, the way the Lord walked when we emulate him in every respect. Did you know that missionaries go into some very dangerous areas? Right? Just like Jesus and the disciples, I'm sure he taught them the right way. After, after the end, they realized, well, this is what God wanted, and I'm, I'm kind of glad we did this, and I learned something today. But they broke through that Gentile culture. Now, Jesus, being God, knew all things, but the disciples didn't understand. They had fear. They had preconceived ideas. Maybe they looked down upon them. But they broke through that culture. And missionaries today, do you know that some of them go into remote areas where they're cannibalistic cultures? Now, if you don't know what that word means, it means they eat people. Okay? And I'm not kidding. This is serious stuff. They go into these cultures, and i got to tell you, your preaching to reach their soul better be greater than looking at you and their hunger to put you on a spit and have you for dinner because that's what they do to strangers. Or you better be real skinny when you go there so they think you're not worth it. <laughs> they broke into that culture. 
Are we interested in breaking through the culture where we live or around this church? Do we know what's going on outside of these doors? You realize that we don't have to go far to find desperation. Maybe to help these people with the love of Christ not turn to depression and despondency, but to bring them into, you know, definitive action and determination and the dispersal of the gospel. And let me just ask you this morning, for those who are on the other side now, let me go back again, who are in that situation of desperation. What are you turning to? As you sit here this morning, what have you turned to? What are you involved in right now? It's not too late to turn it around. I got to tell you, if you are in this situation, don't ignore this message. I don't know who you are. Nobody came to me and said, hey, change your whole message on Sunday, Pastor Joe, because my friends come to church and this is the, I don't do that. That would be crazy. I couldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? But don't let yourself go the wrong way on those crossroads. Some turn to substance abuse when they're desperate. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, other addictions. Some turn to rage. Because of their fear, they become enraged because they have a loss of control. And they, and they become ragers. Some overwork at the neglect of their loved ones. Some turn to self-reliance. There's a lot of things that people turn to when they're desperate. I would just ask you this morning, whatever it is, God knows, I don't know. I would ask you to turn to the living God in faith and humility, as these people did, not giving up. Allow him to solve your life's problems with his wisdom and the truth of the gospel. Let's pray.